the very first Christian church that despite its astounding growth and diverse composition is bathed in selfless unity. So you look how Luke describes them, all were of one heart and soul. That's a sort of intimacy found in the most of precious relationships, kindred souls, the connection, for instance, that we hope to have and establish and maintain in marriage. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, Luke writes, but they had everything in common. Now that is not a picture of communism, as some might fear. Some of the members of the early church continued to hold their own property and their own goods. But this is a picture of community, where openness and sharing of what one had was not the exception, but it was the rule. The body was filled with people who, by the Spirit, and because they were enamored by the gospel message, were able and willing to put the interests of others above their own. We're able to let go of that natural bent that we all have to look out for number one. Genuinely, they were looking out for each other. And as they enjoyed this life of mutual care, the apostles, the disciples who had, had been with Jesus, who had seen the resurrected Christ, they continued to give their testimony, continued to bear witness to the resurrection, and they did this, Luke says, he uses this adjective twice at the end of chapter 4. They did this with great power. Not average power, okay? Not natural power. Dunamis, the, the word we get uh, dynamite from. Force, it means force. The very thing that Jesus said they would receive when the Holy Spirit descended. Acts 1.8, but you will receive what? You will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So what Jesus said was going to happen, indeed has been happening, continues to happen, as the Holy Spirit accompanies the preaching of the apostles with his convincing and his convicting as miracles and signs abound. And multitudes are being saved. The church is growing rapidly. The presence of great power pervades the church. The sense of power is there. And again, you, Luke uses this qualifier, great grace was upon them all. So there's great power and there's great grace. Not glimmers of grace. Not glimpses of grace. Not itty bitty grace. Great. Okay, the word means big, exceeding, large, mighty. Grace was upon them all. And the evidence of this great grace upon them all, the outcome of this beautiful, abundant grace that permeated the church in those days is seen in their unity and in their care for one another. There's a lack of animosity there. There's a lack of competition. There's a lack of selfishness. Verse 34, verse 4, paints this mesmerizing picture, especially when considering the number of believers is well into the thousands by now, multiple thousands by now, and still there was not a needy person among them. How could it be that a fellowship of such diverse people from every walk of life, every facet of life, representing every rung on the social ladder, including visitors to Jerusalem who after Pentecost stayed in the city, they stayed there because that's where the church was, right? They couldn't go home to church. 
Not at that point, so they stayed there, but they were visitors and they didn't have homes. They weren't residents. Many of them would, in fact, have been homeless and without a job. And very soon, if not by this time in our text, declaring oneself to be a follower of the way, a follower of Jesus, might make it almost impossible to get a job anyway. How could it be that with all that going on, there was no one needy among them? Luke tells us, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So, so what that tells us is that people who were blessed, people who had more than enough, they were inspired, okay? They were not uh, coerced. They were not commanded. They were not guilted into this. They were inspired by God to liquidate their assets and bring the proceeds into the church to be given to those who were without. They laid their gifts at the apostles' feet, which is a phrase that is repeated in this passage a few times, and it means to submit to the apostles' authority on one hand, but it's also an acknowledgement of the apostles' responsibility. They do not, as one commentator writes, place that money into their hands, but at their feet, in order that the apostles should acquire it not as a personal gift, but as trustees by way of dedication. There's no cut, in other words, especially if you're particularly cynical. There's no cut in this for the apostles. There's no profit to be made, and they're not interested in any sort of profit. Remember, we just came through the miracle of the healing of the lame beggar, and what did both Peter and John say to him when he stretched out his hands for alms? Silver and gold have I none. They are not concerned about money. They are not concerned about wealth. They're not getting anything out of this. What comes and is laid at their feet, they pick up and they spread it out to anybody who has a need. They are conduits of the generosity of God's people. Much the way, if you travel with us sometime on a mission trip to the Dominican Republic, much the way that our brother, Pastor Taunus, does in the DR. Immediately, if you should press some money into his hand, immediately he will go and find the person who needs it. I have seen it done on numerous occasions. That's what's happening here in this church. The apostles were entrusted to distribute the gifts, and that's what they were doing. But it is at this point in the, in the narrative that Luke begins to set up a contrast. There's a right way and a wrong way to do what he's about to describe. As an example of the right way, Luke introduces to the story a man named Barnabas, a son of encouragement. Also, uh, Joseph is his formal name. Barnabas is, Barnabas is going to emerge, you know this, as an important man in the New Testament, an important character, a kind man, a generous man, Apparently, he's the one who can find the good in things. And don't we all need someone like that in our lives? At least one Barnabas who can help us to see the good in things. That's who he is. Barnabas does it the right way. He's the praiseworthy example of what was happening throughout the church. Verse 37, he sold a field that had belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now ponder that for a moment. Picture that if you might. Earlier in this letter, Luke made reference, quoting Peter's explanation of why the vacant 
office of the 12th apostle needed to be filled. Peter had made reference and Luke quoted to a man who had done just the opposite of what Barnabas had done. This man who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus betrayed his rabbi for money with which he bought a field. Barnabas is an anti-Judas. He values people over possessions. He values persons over power. Judas was greedy. We know that because John tells us in his gospel that Judas used to pilfer the disciples' money bag. Barnabas is generous. Judas cared about himself. Barnabas about others more than himself. Friend, this is what the gospel does in the one who's truly received it. The good news of our salvation and our security in Jesus means that we are not ruled by fear and so we can be selfless and we can be generous and extravagantly kind and gracious and merciful. And I could go on and on and on about all these things that we can do, but really what they do mirror is exactly how God has treated us. Not only can we be this way, we would want to be this way when we are walking by the Spirit. Truly a saving encounter with a living God reorders our priorities and our sense of what is most important. Barnabas is the example of giving the right way, and then we're introduced to a couple who model the wrong way. But we know something is afoot because even though we're changing chapters, we're going from four to five, the story still continues, and this particular portion of it begins with a word of juxtaposition, but. Barnabas' act of giving was praiseworthy, it was meritorious, Acts 5.1, but. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. They did the same thing a lot of the wealthy people were doing there, but with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So to be clear here, this incident has nothing to do with the amount of money Ananias and Sapphira had decided to give up, okay? We have the details of their giving. They brought only a portion of the proceeds, but that is not the issue. The land was theirs. They could have kept it. There was and is no requirement in Christianity that one sell or surrender property or possessions unless Jesus specifically requires it, as he did of the rich ruler, right, whose treasure was his God. So that had to go because God will have no other gods before him. But there is no sense in scripture that one is obligated to, that it, as a rule one must sell or surrender personal property or possession or that a community of faith somehow gains control over the goods of its members. Okay, We call that a cult. If the community of faith gains control over the goods of the members, we call that a cult. And Christianity is not a cult. Ananias and Sapphira were under no divine requirement to do anything with their property. They could have stood pat on what they had and that would have been just fine. They could have given away part or none of the proceeds of its sale to the church and that would have been completely acceptable. But as we will see, they intentionally misrepresented their generosity. As Kevin Young to put it, Kevin DeYoung put it, they are not going to be judged for their imperfection 
but for their deception. See, it's their hypocrisy. It's their pious pretense. It's the fraud that they attempted to perpetrate on the church that invited their swift demise. They really just wanted to be seen as something that they were not. More generous than they were. Doing something that they were not doing, which was giving everything. It could have been that they wanted the applause of men. It could have been that they wanted to be popular, well thought of in the church. It could have been that they wanted glory. Later in Acts chapter 12, we're going to come across a story and we'll see how God deals similarly with a king who wants to steal God's glory. It could have been that they were fearful. We do tend to get fearful when it comes to money, don't we? This is kind of why the Ecclesiastes, writer of Ecclesiastes warns us, whoever has wealth never has enough, because we begin to trust in it. And then we begin to feel that we ultimately need it. So it really could have been that they had this little husband and wife conversation which says, yeah, we should give it away. Well, maybe not all of it because we might need some of it. You never know when hard times are coming because the rainy day. It could have been that. It could have just been that they were lovers of money. A lot of people are. And yet it's impossible to love money and love God well, Jesus says. You can't serve two masters. You're either going to love one and despise the other. Think... Think little of nothing of one, of one of them as you exalt the other. That's what's transpiring here. The Holy Spirit is being despised. A duplicitous scheme is being launched. Launched and made to look like spirit obedience. But Peter, who is emerging obviously as a force to be reckoned with in this early church, has the gift of prophetic insight. God allows him to see the truth of what is happening in their midst. In a similar way, God revealed to Joshua what was happening in the Israelite camp. Maybe you recall this from reading through the Old Testament, Joshua 7, the sin of Achan. Jericho had been defeated, the city destroyed, the spoils to go to the treasury of the Lord, but Achan and his family took some of them, took some of the consecrated things. And as a result, um, no, no one really knew this, but when Israel went back into battle, they just weren't successful. They kept getting the tire kicked out of them. Joshua was lamenting that, laying on the ground. God, why did you do this? His prayer sounds a lot like Moses, right? Why well, you bring us all the way over here just so we would die? Remember Moses said that? Not enough, was it Moses? Not enough graves in Egypt? I mean, that's <laughs> desperate. And God reveals to him what is going on. God tells him what's going on. Achan and his family had sinned. Individual sin has consequences for the community. And God had said that previously when he gave him directions about what to do with the spoils. Individual sin has consequences for the community. And though it was Achan who committed the act of stealing from God, God's assessment was that Israel had sinned. Everybody was under that banner. God's people are one. And so how one person behaves will impact the mission of all. And that right there is why this incident with Ananias and Sapphira is so significant. The unity of the church that the church was enjoying could potentially be blown up by the transgression of two of its supposed members who want to be seen as one thing when in fact they are something else. Two times in his letters, 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, uh, verse 6, Galatians 5, verse 9, who knows how many times in his preaching, who knows how many times in his teaching, in his conversations, but two times in his letters, the Apostle Paul teaches that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And those of you who are familiar with baking, I'm more familiar with the eating side of baking, 
But those of you who are familiar with baking, understand, you understand what that means. It doesn't take a lot of yeast for that dough to rise. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, and that's why, beloved, this is why willful, unrepentant sin is so dangerous, why it must be addressed. It is dangerous for the person who engages in it. It leads them to death, and it is harmful to the body, the fellowship that that person is part of. And we are a body, and Christ has made us a body. And if one part of a body is rebelling, the rest of the body suffers, right? The actions and attitudes of every member in a fellowship contribute or detract from the whole. If one part of the body is rebelling, those of you with a bad back, you know about this. The rest of the body, say you have a bad knee, the rest of the body suffers. Immediately, Peter knows what's happening as Ananias feigns submission to the apostles' authority, lays his offering at the apostles' feet, and Peter confronts him, Ananias, this is chapter 5, verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Brothers and sisters, you see that through, though it is Ananias and Sapphira who have um, become the agents of this deception, the one behind it is greater than them. It is the enemy of God's people. It is our adversary. It is the devil. It is Satan who tempts hearts to evil. It is Satan who, who fills hearts to be deceptive. Satan looks for ways to disrupt fellowships who are enjoying the great grace of God upon them. And anybody that's ever been through church conflict will, will, will agree to that. It is, the, it is our enemy who seeks the inroads to plant the leaven in the fellowship, the yeast of dissatisfaction, of grumbling, of judgmentalism, of gossip. That is what our enemy does. He shows up, and sadly, he does not always encounter resistance. The Bible teaches us that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us, but our human nature is so strong. And instead of kicking that evil one to the curb, as we ought, sometimes we swing the door open and invite him in. We listen to his deceiving voice the same way Eve did in the garden. A voice that always encourages us to look out for ourselves. A voice that always encourages us to elevate our own wants. That champions our sense of how things ought to be. Not coincidentally, not surprisingly, the enemy works to disrupt the selfless unity of the church that Jesus purchased with his blood. He frequently harasses the church with threats from without. And if he can, he will also do it by bad behavior within. Later in Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is going to meet with the elders at Ephesus for the last time, and he's giving them instruction there. And he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. I know that fierce wolves are going to come come in from outside and I know that people doing the wrong thing are going to rise up from the inside. So here in Acts 5 the enemy has invaded, has made inroads into the church and threatens the harmony of the early church. And Luke describes Ananias in language that he used in his first book to describe Judas. Luke 22:3 we read that Satan entered Judas and here we see the same as for Ananias which means in plain terms Ananias was not spirit filled he was Satan filled 
He wanted to appear as though he was spirit-filled. That's what he wanted it to look like. That is the fraud that he and his wife have decided to perpetuate. That they were falling in with how the Spirit was working. That they were doing what the Spirit was leading others to do. That's what they wanted it to look like, but they weren't. And that deception is described in particular terms by Peter. It gives insight into the severity of the punishment that it's going to earn. He was lying. Ananias, you're lying. You're a liar. No surprise if he has allowed himself to fall under the influence of Satan, that he would lie, right? Because that's, 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 the devil is a liar, Jesus said that. The devil is a liar and he is a father of lies. And yet to be a believer in Jesus and to be a follower of the way, and not to say that we're perfect in this, but we're certainly told what to do, Ephesians chapter 4, we're to put off the old works of the flesh, to be renewed, transformed in the renewing of our mind, and to put on the new works. And very specifically in Ephesians, Paul is saying you need to put off falsehood. You've got to stop lying. You've got to start speaking the truth. You've got to speak the truth to one another. That's what we are supposed to do. Another way to say that is as believers, we must renounce the works of the evil one that we used to walk in in favor of the ways of Jesus. We must leave the ways of darkness in order to walk in the light. And God wants us to walk uprightly in truth, in integrity, in light. Peter challenges Ananias that he knew what this couple conspired to do. I'm just going to say it tamely. Must have been a complete shock. There will be a lot wilder ways to say that. But to, for Ananias to just hear that he is, he is known in his sin, it must have weirded him out to the core. Why, Peter says. Why? while it remained yours, unsold? It was yours? Why? After it was sold, wasn't it still at your disposal? Why? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. And Peter equates the Spirit with God because the Holy Spirit is God, the third person in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he wants Ananias to understand the severity of his transgression. And this too, friend, is one of the realities of sin. I think it's true for all of us. We rarely see the severity of sin. We rarely see its wickedness. Certainly we don't see it in its entirety. Sin is like that iceberg, I think, that, that you know, a point may stick out above the water, but the massive destructive potential lies underneath. And we can wreck ourselves on it. We can make a shipwreck of our lives just by sailing too close. We can be in danger and think that danger is still a long ways off. It's just part of what it means to be human. We just don't see it. God sees it. God knows how deadly it is. The wages of sin is death, right? The Bible tells us in God as we see in this passage, may call in the wages of sin at any moment that he chooses. So having for selfish reasons of one sort or another decided to indulge sin and bring it into the camp, Ananias is immediately judged and he dies. 
He doesn't die by the hand of Peter. I like this. I think Peter's hand was the hand that raised the lame beggar. Peter brought that lame beggar up, but who knocked Ananias down? God's hand, if you ask me, is the one that does this to Ananias. Some commentators believe that Ananias was so startled and afraid at being called out for his deception that he had a heart attack and died. I've been afraid a lot. Have you ever been that? that that'd, be, that'd be really afraid. And I suspect he was really afraid. But I don't know. Maybe he did die of a heart attack. Would it make you feel better if he died of a heart attack? <laughs> or would it make you feel better to think that God killed him? <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's why we read Psalm 5. Because Psalm 5, 6 says, You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. I'm not sure why we want or need to see the death of Ananias and then his wife as of natural causes. Maybe we don't want to think of our God as a God who would do something like this. But have we forgotten then Nadab and Abihu who offered strange fire before the Lord and were consumed themselves by fire? Or Uzzah who stretched out his hand to write the ark of the Lord as it was being transported and kindled the anger of God and was immediately struck dead? Or Korah who led a rebellion against Moses and whose household and goods were swallowed up? as the ground split beneath their feet. Or even King Uzziah, if you're following along in our read through the Old Testament plan, you just read about King Uzziah, who's offering incense. He's not authorized to do it. He's in a place that he shouldn't be. It immediately becomes leprous by God's judgment. We desire the God of green pastures and still waters. Do we not? We are not so fond or so comfortable of the God of smoke on the mountain whose presence was so fierce that people begged Moses from a great distance, you talk to us, Moses, but don't let him talk to us lest we die. There is a holiness to our God, beloved, right? There is a terrifying purity terrifying power and he will not be mocked and he is perfectly capable and justified in executing righteous and swift judgment when what he loves is mistreated and he loves his church he loves his church and he loves that multitudes are being added to his church that was Satan's problem right that was that was really Satan's problem when you think about it. He's not like bored. Let me mess with some guy named Ananias. This is very strategic. It wasn't, he didn't do this for fun. He didn't fill his heart for, for fun. He filled his heart with evil, wicked intent to blow something up. He doesn't want the gospel of Jesus Christ to go forth and be fruitful. He wants to disrupt. He wants to distract the church from its mission of making disciples, of people getting saved. So he plants this seed of hypocrisy right in the middle, but the Lord graciously tears it out before it can take root. Ananias is dead. 
Some of the young men in the assembly cover him, carry him out, and bury him. And the expediency of burial in that day, in that region, was not unusual. But in this case, it really does seem more in line with how you might bury a criminal. There's going to be no fanfare. There's going to be no recognition. There's going to be no ceremony. There's no funeral. His own wife isn't even told of what is done. This is how you bury a criminal, a transgressor. Sapphira comes next to Peter. He gives her a chance to do the right thing. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she, and she said, yes, for so much. So in describing disreputable people, I've heard my grandfather say, one will lie and the other will swear to it. <laughs> and that is exactly what is happening here. One is lying and the other is swearing to it. But Peter said, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they're going to carry you out too. Isn't it interesting, right? How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Do you think that they, they conspired to test the spirit of the Lord? Do you think that was the conversation around the dinner table? Do you think that Ananias and Sapphira are looking at each other? Hey, I've got an idea. Let's see what we can get away with when it comes to the spirit of the Lord. Maybe they just kept a plan to keep some money, knowing that it would make them look more generous than they were. I think that's probably what was going on. They didn't understand that they were testing the spirit of the Lord, even though they had conspired to sin. And again, this is the deceitfulness of sin. We don't recognize how heinous it is. We minimize it. We don't recognize what we're really doing. We don't really recognize who we're really sinning against. We don't remember sometimes it's not fresh with us that every sin is a sin against God. And our ignorance is no excuse. The Holy Spirit is God. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Immediately she fell down at his feet to breathe her last. And the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her, buried her beside her husband. That's a solemn day. That's a somber day for the early church. It is a day that screams choices have consequences. C.S. Lewis wrote, every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature. Either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war with and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven, that is joy and peace and knowledgeable knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Choices have consequences. Every time you make a choice, you incur the consequence of that choice in yourself, in others. Are the choices, friend, that you're making today leading you to God? Or are they leading you away from him? It was a day that screamed choices have consequences. It was a day where God demonstrated that even if some are indifferent to their sin, he is not. 
It was a day when the church saw the holiness of God. And we read that great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard of these things. And we might believe and we might even say, we wouldn't want a God, we wouldn't want a God we had to fear. I have heard that. That has been said to me. Oh, I don't really want a God that I have to fear. I don't want to be afraid of God. And yet, what does the scripture tell us about the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord is where it starts. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. How much better do you think would things be in our country, around our world, in our churches, and in ourselves if our hearts were truly filled with a healthy fear of a holy God? Would you bow your heads for a moment? As we ready ourselves for worship and song, take just a couple of minutes here to reflect and maybe respond. I just want to toss out a few things for you to think about. Let the Spirit work. What, what sort of choices are you making? And are they good ones? Are they helping you to become more a son or a daughter of heaven? Or a son or daughter of hell? And in evaluating that, please, let Scripture be your guide, not your sense, but what the Scripture says. What sort of choices are you making, and are they good ones? Is it possible that you've come to accommodate some bad stuff in your life, that you've become insensitive or indifferent to it? Hebrews tells us the deceitfulness of sin hardens our hearts. Maybe you're here today and you just have a hard heart because you have been engaged in sinful behavior. And I want you to know the Lord can refresh and soften that hard heart. The Lord can change that hard heart. Can you say that, and I hope you can, but if you can't now, it's a good time to come to terms with it. Can you say that you revere God? That you fear God? That you reverence His ways? That you know God well enough that you wouldn't presume upon his grace because you know that he's also a God to be feared. Do you know that? Pray with me. Oh, Father, we ask you to show us any habits of deception that we might have in our lives. We need your help. Our hearts are desperately wicked. We cannot see. So help us to see and help us to renounce any lies that we are using, any props, any masks, anything that we are using to make ourselves or others believe that we're more spiritual than we are, that we're somehow more attuned to what your spirit is doing and how you're leading than we really are. Deliver us, God, we ask, from dishonesty, from hypocrisy, from indifference to sin, and help us to joyfully, confidently, without pretense, walk in the light as you are in the light. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.